This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. Um, today we're actually, uh, you know, we might as well uh, slide that board a little bit just to get some more light on the room. That's a good idea. Just careful the cable. Um, you can put it out. It doesn't have to be close to the wall. Anyway, the, uh, today what we're doing is we're discussing uh, the rigidity of uh, roles in the observant community for women, specifically women. And this is all coming with the, uh, this was really your idea. So what's your name? Lynn. My mother-in-law apparently has joined us. Um, <laughs> name's Lynn. Yes. And nice to meet you, Lynn. And I, my name's Yom Tov. You actually look familiar for some reason. I don't know. I've been coming here off and on for a year. Oh, great. So I've seen you many times. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And uh, and so, Lynn, if you don't mind introducing your experience that you had, you told us about interviewing some women. Well, um, I live in California, so I attend a Chabad there. And on my visits there, often a woman will come alongside me and say, I, I don't come here very often because I can't sit with my husband. I've been married for 40 years or 20 years or 10 years or 15. I've been that many times I have had inquiries. So I'm like, well, what do you think about this? You know, she said, well, I each of them have said in essence the same thing. I come, but it's very hard for me because why can't I worship with my husband? That's one thing. The second thing is, as someone who is studying Judaism, it's very strange for me that Orthodox women shave their hair, head. shaved head business yet. We're on the subject of, uh, for example, men and women not worshiping. Now, if I can start on that, uh, maybe, you know, maybe I hope I haven't sinned, but but I just took my wife up to the mountains and and I prayed with my wife. I think what the issue with uh, with the people not praying with their wives is that they're they're not praying with other people's wives. Because when you're in synagogue, you're you're not just with your wife. There's no problem praying with your wife. The problem is praying with all the other wives. And and girls and single women and, and all that. And uh, that when we're involved in prayer, I'm gonna look to the camera sometimes. When we're when we're involved in prayer, um, it's a relationship between us and God. And this part of the, the the part of life that has to do with the union of males and females, or 
female kindred in the singular, um, is is the um, is it's a basically what happens in Judaism and Kabbalah is we is we divide the 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 parts of a human being between the below the belt and the above the belt. So the below, above the belt is the heart and the mind, and that's like one's higher faculties, and that's kind of the fiber optic link to to God. And so we use that we use that upper we use those upper levels to connect with um, with God, and then the lower levels are which is the world of sexuality is is also used to connect with God, but they need a separation. You'll notice a lot of Hasidic Jews will wear a belt. Oh, it's called a garfel, and they wear this this belt that separates the upper and the lower faculties when we pray. It's like I'm a Hasidic Jew, so I wear I wear that that garfel. Separate those faculties. Now, when we're in a prayer service, it's totally cool to pray with your wife. In fact, uh, where we were, where I was praying was on a deck in a pine forest, and and above it was a restaurant with uh, with all these like really holy hippies in there. Like everyone's, all the people who worked there had like dreadlocks, and and they were like super trippy types, and uh, and so I, I went in later. I went in there and, and uh, ordered a cappuccino. And they, all, they had all come up, like all the people who worked in that restaurant came up to my wife and I and said that how special it was to see, see us praying together down below on the deck. Like that was a very special. And I said, yeah, it was, it was better, than, better than in shul where we can't pray together. Because here we got to really pray together. It was very nice. And there's a famous story. What's the famous story of husband and wife praying together? Yitzchak and Rivka. Rebecca and Yitzchak prayed together. And... Um, and so we, we know we have a very strong source of husband and wife praying together in the Torah from uh, when they were praying for children. And anyway, so, so the, when, it, when it comes to prayer, you want to be having yourself in, a, uh, uh, in as much as a, you want to isolate your sexuality from, from prayer service. Yeah, you, want, you want it isolated, and you want it only to be your upper faculties that are being employed. And so, for that reason, the in in group prayer, we are separated from from people of the opposite gender, just so we're totally focused in prayer. But the uh, but certainly couples are allowed to pray together, and it's very special to pray together. You know what's interesting is the the synagogue where I live. Has a it has a stair. When you come out of shul, it's the second floor of a long staircase, so the it's perfectly symmetrical. So the women's staircase is here, the men's staircase is here, and then they you go around the side of the building and in. And so, but when you come out of synagogue and you get to the top of the stairs, you'd be looking directly across this building at the women coming out of shul. So at the bottom of the staircase, these two long staircases, the bottom of the staircase is a wall that goes 30 feet high. It's about this wide. And it's a wall that goes 30 feet high. It's a staircase mechitza. Because now that you've done your prayer, and now you're going to go reunite with your spouse, you're not going to see all the other spouses. You come out of synagogue, you go down the stairs, and then there's a courtyard below, and the men turn right, and the women turn left, and then they reconvene in the courtyard. They find their spouse in the courtyard. But 
but there's like, you, right when you walk out of synagogue, even outside synagogue, you're not even seeing the women of the community. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna, just, you just see whatever. You're just coming down the stairs. It's quite beautiful, actually, because it's a big view of the courtyard and the, the, everything from up top. You see, but you're not staring at the women coming out of shore. And and then when everyone's kind of reconvening in the courtyard, there you, you find your spouse, or you meet at home because most of us live somewhere near that courtyard or in the courtyard. Um, anyone else have something to say about uh, not mixed prayer? No one else has something to say about that? Okay, great. Who wants to share about hair? Go for it. Okay, so I went to a Hasidish seminary, and one of the myths that I believed was that all Hasidish women, not all Jewish women, just Hasidish women, shave their heads when they get married, and I was very disturbed by the fact, because obviously I like my hair. Um, so when I went to, I asked the girls, and I think out of all of them, one has that minhag in their family. So I asked them about it, what, what is behind it, and why they do it, and kind of the trauma of shaving your head bald, and also how their husbands feel about it. So when something is passed down, they were trying to explain it to me. Obviously, we don't understand it as well as they do, because having something brought to you when you've already formed your ideas of what is right and what makes sense. When it comes up, you're like, that seems crazy. But they grow up with this concept, and the concept is that when you have to go to the mikvah, it's something that's not supposed to be there. Like, you're supposed to cut your nails, and you're not supposed to wear makeup, and not have a nail polish when you go. Same thing with hair. So they don't shave it bald, they shave it very short. And then I asked them, what did the, their husbands... It's not that hair is not supposed to be there. It's that your, your hair is not supposed to have any knots. Yeah. But a more strict way of dealing with that is to not... Have it. Have it. <laughs> hair enough to make knots. Okay? But go on. Okay. So, that's, that's the halacha behind it. And they cut their hair really, really short. And I asked them what their husbands feel about it. And they said that, first of all because they're very, very serious women. That's, obviously, if they're shaving their heads, that means that they're keeping a lot to eat extreme. So their husbands actually don't really see their hair. Like, they'll either be wearing the shaved doll or their sickle and things like that. And also, same thing as what we don't understand is that their husbands are used to this. And that's what they are used to. That's my that. They grew up that way. Exactly. But you think the boys so know their mothers don't have hair? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You think that the mothers? I don't think they, they don't walk out like that. But I think also if it's something that you're grown up with, then like it's probably not something that's exposed to them, but it's a concept that they have that it's just a, it's, it's just a factor of life. Mm -hmm. like, and you're shaking your head. I'm I agree with, with her. I mean, when, if they grew up that way, and that's all they've seen, there's nothing that they see is wrong. You know what? You know what I was taught by Rob Berkowitz uh, many, many years ago is that the <coughs> women never shave their heads, and the Torah actually, um, the Torah actually has. There's a, we have a Torah as a source that it's considered disgusting that's that a woman should have a shaved head. And that's the, the that's why the. 
the the woman. Uh, you know what? Maybe let's bring the camera to this woman's table. So it's. Uh, the, I'm saying it just for the sound. I think the. Will it stretch that far? Can I move over? Yeah, I'm yeah that's good. Cool. Anyway, the. Um, can I just hold it? Yeah, you can just hold it. steady. You can sit too. So, anyway, the, the we have a source in the Torah because we have this very strange commandment that is uh, it's the weirdest commandment. One of the strangest commandments in the whole Torah is that if a man on the battlefield loses himself and takes a woman on the battlefield, meaning, how did they say? Conjugally, there's a fit. Conjugally, conjugally. Yeah, I mean he takes he takes the woman right there on the battlefield. So, which is, and why would a soldier do such a thing? I mean, the, the only soldiers that are soldiers in Judaism are the most holy kids. You couldn't, you cannot fight in the army if you've even had one sin. So, like anyone who has, why? Because they'd be afraid that that sin would they lose their protection. So to be a soldier in the Israeli army meant that you were like the holiest person ever because you'd never sin. But once you're on the battlefield and you're in that kind of animalistic kind of survival mode, so apparently there's the, there's a, the same drive, survival and reproduction, with reproduction being sexuality, that drive can be very strong. And, uh, and they could actually wind up taking a girl on the battlefield. So there's a strange commandment in the Torah, and that is that if the soldier does that, he shouldn't do it, but if he did it, he uh, he now he can't leave her there. He has to take her home. He has to actually take her home. I mean, can you imagine introducing that to his wife? That's almost as bad as bringing a sheep home on, in Egypt, you know, for four days, you know, tied to the bedpost. You know, try to explain that to your wife. You know, are we going to put a diaper on it? You know, they, they, we also have to inspect the Paschal lamb for four days. You know, it's also a bit difficult to explain to one's wife. But, but the, uh, but the, can you imagine your husband comes home from battle with a girl? He's like, why don't both of you leave? <laughs> but, but anyway, the Torah has a commandment that if someone does it, they can't just leave her there. They have to take responsibility for what they've done. Yeah. And, and one of the things they do, and there's several things they have to do, but one of the things they have to do is, or that she has to do, is she has to shave her head. Why? Because she has to look disgusting to her, to him. Because he's just come home. He's come home to his wife. And so she has to look disgusting to him. So how does she look disgusting to him? Through shaving her head. So, so her only source in shaving heads is that a woman should look disgusting to the guy so that he shouldn't keep her at the end of that month. She has to stay there for a month. But when I asked the question, there was much enthusiasm and smile from the women in the room here. About? The question that I asked about shaving heads. Right. No, they were just shocked that you thought everyone shaved their head. Very few people shaved their head. Why do they make them do that? Yeah, it's only a couple communities. I'm getting that. There's only a couple communities that do this. Chabad doesn't shave. What is the reason? This is a Chabad that I'm going to. Yeah, they don't. No one in that shul no shaves their head. No one. Okay. No one about to shave. So I come from a family where half of us do shave our heads and half of us don't. Okay, okay. thank you. And I've spoken to all my family members about it. And first of all, you have to realize where it's coming from. There's not only one reason why women are shaving their heads, and 
a lot of what we grew up with is obviously what we're used to, which a lot of people said, but the laws of modesty are really about a lifestyle. And a lot of these women who shave their heads, their husbands don't see them as ugly or whatever it is because it's, they're shaving their heads and then it's only for him. She is now only for him. They only do it after they get married. If a woman is so upset about it, then it should be discussed with her husband and maybe she should stop. Like these women who are so upset about it, if there's no set in stone law about it. That's it. B, not most Orthodox women don't shave their head. <coughs> most Orthodox women will cover their hair after they get married, but they still have hair. And, and all Chabonics, all Chabonics have hair. They don't shave it. They're not one of those communities. Yeah. So, like, there's a community. It's mostly Hungarians. So Hungarians. And the Chabonics are Russians. But this is a good example, no? Are you from the side of the family that shaves or not shaves? Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. It depends on the boy I marry. If uh, that's what he wants. I'm saying, me personally, I don't know how much I would mind doing it. But that's just because I grew up with it. And I'm being serious. Like, if I marry a boy and that's really important to him, that's not going to scare me. But that's because most of the people that I'm closest with do shave their heads. Really? But my mother doesn't shave her head. Never has. Probably never will. Um, and, like... People like to make this huge deal about it, but in today's day and age, it's not necessary. If a girl is so, so, so upset about it, she doesn't have to do it. And it's not a law. It's certainly not a law. Anyway, so Rob Berkowitz goes on and said, I didn't even get to what Rob Berkowitz said. Rob Berkowitz said something really crazy. Ready for this? He said that, that the Hungarians decided that the women should shave their heads. Why? Because the Haskala, which is the Enlightenment's effect on the Jews. This is going to be a long story, but but 200 years ago, only 3% of Jews had real scholarship. We lived basically Fiddler on the Roof style. Remember Tevye on Fiddler on the Roof? Meaning the guy's an absolute and total ignoramus. He doesn't know his knee from his elbow, Jewishly. But he's got all these daughters who then assimilate throughout the movie. You know, it's like all that Hollywood. Jews in Hollywood dealing with their own guilt, so they have to like show how it's okay to assimilate. So Fiddler on the Roof is just one more jazz. It's all the same theme, <laughs> jazz singer. Uh, there's a couple other movies. Like There were a bunch of big Hollywood shows, and Fiddler on the Roof is one of them. Of, uh, you know, that's, that's just... It's just Jewish showbiz people feeling terribly guilty for being secular. And so they have to create this assimilation narrative in a, in a movie or in Fiddle and Roof was a, a musical they have to show this assimilation narrative where where the where the parents generation come around you know to like in the jazz singer you see the rabbi right. Neil Diamond's father with beard sitting in the at the end of the movie after all the hell Neil went through the you know the jazz singer went through at the end of the movie it's his big concert on Shabbos or who knows what that's not on Shabbos and there's the rabbi in the fifth row, <laughs> laughing to the music, you know. Meaning, see, even the generation that we betrayed mm-hmm. has said that it's okay now. And so we're all emancipated from Judaism. So this, this, um, this assimilatory wave was a massive wave that hit the world 200 years ago. And it all came with the enlightenment of the Gentiles, who came out from under the thumb of the church. And so... The Jews now were in great risk. Now, had all the Jews been scholars, it wouldn't have been at all a risk. 
because they would have just laughed, just like today Jewish scholars laugh at, you know, secular philosophy. You know, modern day, modern atheistic thought is nothing to a, a Torah scholar. It means nothing. I mean, it's just like those conversations are easy to be had and no one's nervous about having As you'll notice in these classes, no one seems to care about having atheist discussions. You know, because it's just not a big deal for us. But 200 years ago, it was a big deal. You had whole towns where the only scholar in the entire town was the rabbi of the town. Now, one of the reactions to that Enlightenment movement, or what we call in Hebrew the Haskalah, one of the reactions to the Haskalah was yeshivas. We're going to build yeshivas. And so at 13 years old, instead of going to become a cobbler or a, or a carpenter or a glazer, which is a glassmaker, instead of going to do that, you're going to go to yeshiva. And so the first time ever, there was yeshivas. There's never been yeshivas. Yeshivas were only for top scholars 2,000 years ago in Babylonia. There's no such thing as yeshivas until 200 years ago. That's when the first yeshivas... It's amazing how we all think, like, you're either in yeshiva or you're a goy today. Meanwhile, yeshivas are only 200 years old. Such a thing of a 13-year-old going to yeshiva. Now, if you happen to have a child who is a, a genius you would send him to learn with the rabbi. So he would not become a carpenter. He would study with the rabbi in the shul. Just the two of them would study all day in the, in the shul. By the time he was 14, 15, he would be taken hundreds of miles away to where there's an elderly rabbi of that community, because he's going to die eventually, and he would be married off to the wealthiest guy in that town. And me and the daughter of the wealthiest guy in that town. And he would, uh, he would then become the rabbi of that town. That, that particular genius. He was the only guy who got to study, who got to study full-time after 12 years old. Now, what happened was Hungary got hit... Um, can you turn off the fan? It's just that he, he hit the power. Hungary got hit particularly bad by the Escola because Hungary was known for its ignorance of Torah. I mean, it really was a town of ignorant people and a rabbi. A town of ignorant people and a rabbi. And when the Haskalah came through Hungary, people were just like throwing off their clothes. Kippas were like flying through the air. Sitsis became dental floss. And the and what happened was all the married women were uncovering their hair. So the rabbis said that we're going to make a new rule that when a woman gets married, she shaves her head so that she'll never uncover her. It was in the answer to the to the Haskala that when a woman gets married, at least this town, they're never going to uncover their hair. And there's some radical stories that took place there. I'll tell you one crazy story. Is uh, is uh, in one town that was particularly pious. Uh, the 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 same secularization Jews came to like work over that town as well, and uh, and actually one woman uncovered her hair, and the rabbi of that community cursed her and she didn't wake up the next day and they and they had her um, they actually had her they had the funeral the rabbi asked that the funeral should pass by his home and so they passed the whole procession passed by his home and the rabbi walked out of his house they thought he was coming to apologize for having cursed her the rabbi walks out of his house they paused there they, they had the you know the body right there and the you know, in those days, still today, in Jewish law, you don't use a coffin. It's just wrapped. 
bodies wrapped. And um, in Israel, too. In America, they, they either have a, a bottomless coffin where they pull it out. Once it's in the grave, they pull it out because it's, it's forbidden in America not to use a coffin. But, uh, but they have trick coffins. So you either have the trick coffin with a removable bottom or they have holes drilled all over the, all over the place that, so, so that you're not allowed to bury a Jew inside a coffin. So anyway, because um, it's from the earth you came, you go back to the earth. You don't go back to a box, a sealed box. That's, that's, and that's quite torturous to, for the soul of the deceased. Anyway, the, um, the rabbi comes out of his house, goes right up to the, the deceased, and spits on the dead woman in front of the eyes of the whole community. He was making a really strong point. Now, no one ever assimilated again from that community. She was it. Now, that's a really crazy story. I mean, that's, and that's a true story. I mean, that, that really took place. And it's a crazy story. But, but, it's a, but it, was, it saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. And he, he decided to make a sacrifice. Now, of course, you're not allowed to do such a thing. And that rabbi went out on a limb, and it's, a, you know, we don't even, I don't know who that rabbi was. I'm sure, I'm sure Rob Berkowitz knows who it is, um, who that particular community leader was. I, I don't, he maybe told us at the time, I don't remember who it was. But, uh, but he did save the community using such radical uh, uh, moves as that. So no woman ever uncovered her hair from that community again. And the, and the Hungarians continue to this very day because it's become, you know, it's not very functional to be shaving one's head. That's kind of a dysfunctional thing to do. But what happens is it was a, it was a move that was made to save Jewry, to save Jewry from the from the the, the uh, assimilation, and so that move was made. And but what happens with things over time, especially with human beings, is we build we build tradition around things, and so now it's become like they, the Hungarians have turned it into holiness itself. You can understand, you know, the community like that's considered now holy, even though it was never meant to be holy. It was only meant to keep women from uncovering their hair because there's nothing holy about it. And certainly you can comb hair out. I mean, anyone who's checked for lice knows that you can use a very fine comb and get the hair with zero knots in it. So there's no reason a woman has to shave her hair to go to the mikvah. Um, it, it was... Uh, if, if what Rob Berkowitz shared with us is the truth about shaving heads, so then, so then really in the end, it has nothing to do with the mikvah. It had to do with assimilation. And it just happens to be a, a myla that you don't have to check the hair if there's no hair for the mikvah. It just is one less thing to do. But historically, no Jewish woman shaved her head for mikvah. Never. None of them. Not Sarah, not Rivka, not Rachel, not Leah, and not Miriam, and not Esther, and not nobody. Zero women, absolutely zero women shaved their head for the mikvah. It has nothing to do with law, and it has nothing to do with the mikvah. Because you just don't need that for the mikvah. You just need to comb the hair out for the mikvah, and nothing more than that. And, um, and, and who knows, I don't know enough laws about mikvah, there probably is such a thing that even with a knot in the hair, the mikvah is still kosher, even with a knot. Meaning, let's say a woman missed a knot, it does not mean now 
that she's no longer kosher for the mikvah. It may be that she is not kosher for the mikvah. But you have to know the laws. Because there's many times where we're extra strict for things, and mikvah is one of those types of things, because Jewish women are great at being strict at things. They're way more stricter than men. I don't know if you know that about Jewish women. I, I, Jewish women are famous for being strict. Well, from a previous class here today. You also got that impression? Uh, no, it was stated, and I thought it was really a great example that the woman is the one, she's supposed to help her husband. Yeah. You, know, you mean he keep his act together? Uh, study. Okay, that too. But women, Jewish women are known for for being more strict when it comes to Judaism. They're, they're, they're very, very strict on themselves. And there, there's even a whole shawl community where women now wear shawls. Meaning, did I say shawls? Uh, burkas. There's women who wear burkas. Did you know that? There's a whole burqa community. Yeah, I mean, they're not very big, and they're all, you know, either converts or bali chuba, but, but there is a, uh, you know, just leave it to Jewish women to start wearing burqas. You know? Like the, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty freaky looking. So, anyway, but men are... Uh, Men are, men are generally not... If you find a strict Jewish man, he'd probably be diagnosed with OCD. Whereas if you find a strict Jewish woman, she doesn't have OCD. She's just strict. She's just a strict is she, Jewish she hold, woman. Is she holy? For being strict? That's an amazing question. That, that, it, probably yes. The OCD man is not holier because of it. Because he's just got a mental disorder. Uh, whereas a woman being stricter was pro- is probably very holy in that she really doesn't want to... She doesn't want to betray her maker. I, th- I think it would be good... Do the women think that? Is your mom holy? you consider her holy? Yeah. yeah. Yes. 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 All of you? More spiritual. More spiritual? Mom? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's an unanimous. Well, that's, uh, that's beautiful. She has a better honor. clarity in life. Uh, <laughs> What's that? She has better clarity in like, understanding of life. In God? And that's, a, that's a great message for uh, those that are not Jewish. You know, to that message to go out, how much you do honor your mother and uh, what you've learned from her as you go out to be able to let people know how much you, as a Jewish person, respects and honors your mother as the role that she has in your household. Mm-hmm. I, I've been studying Judaism for a year here and I... I, I, am, I tell everybody, all of my Christian friends, there's nothing. I wish, you, I wish you had the privilege to come to the school that I get to come to here. I could hardly wait to come. Um, I probably spent, I, I've taken at least 100, oh, more than 100 classes here. <laughs> you know, I couldn't wait there. It's, uh, the depth of learning here is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my friends back home, I have so many, most of my friends now are Jewish women. And they love to take me out, show and tell, come with us, Lynn, come with us, Lynn. We want others to see how you love, appreciate, and honor Jewish Judaism, the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And please know this. I'm glad you, I want you to hear this message, that you have, you have so much to offer to society. And you modeling the role of your mother, how she is, how you speak of her, as being holy. And what a privilege that is. Have you ever told your mother? How much you thank her for yes. being holy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let her know that she's doing a great job. <laughs> These are challenging days. And for us as mothers to be able to love on you and have you be able to pass this on, you, you ladies are at marriage age. 
awesome of you are married. This is wonderful for you to to know this and have this conversation. Thank you for sharing with me. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so just to um, get back to this, um, <coughs> the oh, is just this funny question of uh, hair altogether. Like, women's hair is such a big subject. Women's hair is a huge subject. In the observant community of Jews, the Gentile community, you know, when you see a commercial for a car, it sometimes has a woman sitting on the hood. And it's hard to tell if it's a shampoo commercial or a car commercial. Because it's not just that there's a woman on the hood. It's that there's... Um, it's certainly featuring her hair. Like this commercial is definitely about the Ford Mustang. But it's, you know, it's saying, it's, you see it's a Ford commercial. But, but and you'll notice a lot of the commercials that are, you know, out there, it could just as easily be a shampoo commercial because it's, it's featuring the hair of the woman in the, in the ad. That's really what's being featured. Not only that, but, uh, but a lot of men don't know this, that women check out men way before the man checks out the woman. When women walk around, when people walk around the street, women see a man way before she see, he sees her. And, and he has no idea that he's been checked out. <coughs> the men don't realize that he's already been checked out. And it's very easy for the woman to catch him checking her out because it's just so easy because she's already checked him out. He's already on the radar. So by the time she hits the radar and he his radar and he checks her out, he's caught red-handed, you know, almost every time. That's just the way men are. You know, I had this unique experience. I walk to shul by myself every... Uh, I mean, I walk with my son or whatever, but, but I'm, I'm a very friendly person and my, my vibrational energy is super open. So, so everyone I walk by, which is all the other men walking to shul, because our wives are usually lighting candles or they're passed out or who knows what... But the, uh, they're not walking to shul Friday night. So when we walk to shul Friday night, the um, almost every single person I walk by says hi to me. So it's either a nod, or it's a good Shabbos, or it's a hi, but nobody says nothing. There's not even like, I mean, if I walk by a hundred people, one out of the hundred maybe <coughs> acknowledge my existence. And then after prayer, where I'm really open... I'll have people interrupt me on my way home, like random people just walking up to me to talk. And, you know, it took me, it's a 15-minute walk from my shul to my house. I, I, three weeks ago, it took 45 minutes. And I asked my guests, I said, did I walk up to one person on the way? Because my wife's like, where have you been? I asked my guests, did, one, did I walk up to one person? They're like, no, I didn't walk up to anybody. But you had about five people walk up to you. To talk, and I didn't know who they were. They didn't know who I was. And anyway, wherever I, wherever I, when I walked to Shul, the um, anyway. So I was recently, finally, I really enjoyed this. I walked to Shul with my wife. She came, which was such a wonderful experience to have my wife walk to Shul with me. And we had really great talk, and it was really amazing. And walked Shul. Now I'm passing men the whole way. So my my tradition is I acknowledge every man I walk by. Is I'm acknowledging each man as I walk by, which is, you know, a nod or something, because I'm talking to my wife, so I'm not going to say good job. I'm just give him a nod. You ready for this? Not one man, not one man, most of them were Hasidic. There were several uh, Lidfish men and several Sephardic men. Most were Hasidic. 
Not one single man met my eyes. Not only one single man looked at me. Every single man checked out my wife from head to toe. And back up. They went head to toe from the from my from they started up, checked out her face, went down to her toes, and then went straight back up to her face. And by then they're passing, because we're passing. They only have so much time. Every single one without one exception. I was I was so everyone. No and it didn't matter which community. I was shocked. Do you guys notice? So my question to the ladies is: Do you notice this going on? Yeah, yeah but we're not walking with our husbands. Yeah, we have a husband. <laughs> so you figure it? Yeah, you figure they're distinguishing? They're distinguishing between the marrieds and the singles. They're not. They're not even distinguishing if she's with her husband. Wow. I was yeah, shocked. I always thought once you get married, like that's it. So, so here's the thing: is I, to be really honest here. When I see a man who's staring straight down at the street while he walks on the street, I've kind of had taken issue with that. I've taken issue with it because it's just so unfriendly to do that. To, to stare at the street while you're walking is very unfriendly. It's not very good for your forehead either. And I, I've, had, I've had several neighbors break limbs. You know, I have a, there's one family who's particularly holy. By the way, the Gomorrah talks about men who don't look at anyone when they walk. Um, you know what they're called? They're called a parush. Parush means someone who separates himself from desire. Parush, kizi. You know what kizi means? Kizi means kizi means bloodletting, because they wind up banging into stuff and bleeding. So they're called a bloodletting. Used to be a healing mechanism where people used to let blood for for getting rid of viruses and stuff. It was called bloodletting. It was a something doctors did. They would come to your house and let out some blood from your body to called bloodletting. So that's called Hakaza. Uh, so someone who's called a Gamora talks about my neighbors. I have one there's one family that uh, that we call the Keezing. And that they're and the Gamora talks about people like this. They're called Parush Kizi because they bang into stuff and wind up bleeding. Now, so is it, is it proper? Yeah, so I got it. Well, is it proper for, like, women, to, for us to say Shabbat Shalom on Friday and Saturday? To men? Yes. No. no. Shabbat Shalom to men? You ladies say Shabbat Shalom to men? Oh, in the, oh yeah, I thought you were talking about when we're in, like, our black hat communities. No, these weren't black hats. No, if you're in the black hat community, you, you wouldn't do it in a black hat community. Yeah, for sure. Old city, Nakla So it really depends on the community. No, the more intense the community, the less likely you'd be saying Don't give eye contact. Yeah, not even eye contact. Even if you're old. Anyway, so I have to say, I've had a, because I'm so friendly, I've had a little bit of judgment of the, the, the Kizim that I've met. Or see, you know, you see them around. But after having that walk to show with my wife, I'm starting to wonder if, if it's not so bad. Because that was really bad. Yeah. You understand? That was really bad. And now I realize that's going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't even realize that was going on. And this, and this is your poor yeah, wife? And I, haven't, I don't do that. Yeah. I'm not, I don't do that. Meaning, I'm careful to make sure, like, I'm not supposed to be saying hi, but that's it. You know, meaning I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll identify people just to make sure I'm not like 
you know, walking by some student who, like, you know, she gave her life to me, you know, like, to help her, and now I'm just going to walk by her. So I, I'm going to nod or at least say good job or something. Like, I'm careful to identify people. Anyway, but, but I'm wondering if these guys who, like, only stare at the ground are really going the right way after what I saw with the ones who don't. I don't know. It's an inquiry. I don't have an answer. Well, did you ask your wife if she observes this every time she goes out the door? You know, I, I never even said it to her. I should have said it to her. Did I didn't say it to her. No, just recently I, I mentioned it to her. She said she didn't notice. <laughs> My wife's so holy. Anyway, so so listen, this is what I want to say is that when women check out men way before the men even notice the woman. And here, but here's this thing, is that whenever a woman checks out a man, she always touches her hair. And check yourselves out. You'll notice as you walk around like the rover or whatever, you'll notice that you keep touching your hair and you'll start to correlate it. You'll see that you touch your hair whenever you check out a man. Huh, and so, and not too many men know this. Not too many men know this, but but uh, but I've told some men, you know, I've told some men that, that uh, about this, that, that in case you were wondering, you know, if you notice a woman, if you pass a woman and she's touching her hair when you saw her, so she's probably... She's probably, uh, so what, what am I saying ultimately? What I'm saying is that the, the sensuality around a woman is her hair. So then that leads us to the question is, is, is does a married woman have to cover her hair? And so everyone would say yes, because the Torah clearly says that. And, and we also learn that, I, uh, that the, we even learn that it's a Torah principle that a woman covers her hair once she's married. How do we know it from? How do we know it? it's from the Torah that a woman covers her hair? No. So, well, not covering, but binding. Mm. So, no. Ah, she got it. The sota, the sota. Oh, that he, but he unbraids her hair. No, that also. But she, she, it says that he uncut uh, the soda lady. The soda lady, um, it's, it's with a T, sota. The sota lady is a woman who's been, who has been sequestered for, for, um, meaning she's no longer able to be with her husband because he suspects her of, of adultery. And once she's suspected, they're forbidden to each other until she comes to Jerusalem. And there's a whole service that takes place, and then she winds up drinking this water, and, she's and, and either she'll die, okay. if she's holier, she'll die slower, if she's not so holy, she dies quicker, and she, um, and if she's pure, meaning if she's clean, and she did not cheat on her husband, she'll, she'll be pregnant, she'll get pregnant, and they'll have a baby, and, and, they, and obviously they can get back together. Now, of course, this ne- almost never happened because no, who, what woman who cheated on her husband is not going to admit it when she's about to drink some deadly potion. So this is a very, very rare thing that a woman would be crazy enough to drink that. Because if she cheated, she's not going to drink it. If she didn't cheat, she's happy to drink it. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it's just a bit of a strange thing. Um, and also, if she didn't do it, why did she have to go through the humiliation of such a ceremony publicly? And it, it, it gets much worse than I'm going to describe here. And the, uh, the ceremony is really rough. But, uh, but the uh, uh, rough as far as humiliation is concerned. And so the, but the answer is, is that um, she, she was accused rightfully. Not because he saw her do something. If he saw her do it, then it's over. There's no, 
That's adultery. This is a suspicion. Now, the fact that a woman can ever come under suspicion means that meta connected meta, measure for measure, now she's got to do this. Meaning, if you tried to do something, in, if you were not a modest woman in your secret life, so now you have to publicly be humiliated. So it's a public humiliation for secret, uh, secret uh, lack of modesty. And now, if she didn't do it, she's been water won't do anything to it. The 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 soda waters will not do anything to it. Now, um, but one of the things that it says in the Torah is that you uncover her hair. And Rashi says there, from here we learn that it's a Torah principle that a married woman covers her hair. So what's the answer? Does a married woman cover her hair? The answer is no. No. Why? Because at a, on the wedding night of a woman, does she have to cover her hair? No. No. Is she married? Yes. So she doesn't have to cover her hair at her wedding night. She's married. No one would say she's not married. If they were to break it off, let's say the... the the groom does, or she doesn't like the way he dances or he doesn't like the way she dances and they decide to break it off do they need a get? yeah for sure they need a get they are married the couple's 100% married yet she can dance the night away with her hair uncovered comes the following morning can she can she uh, have her hair uncovered the following morning in public? no now she has to have her hair covered so what happened between the dancing at the wedding reception to the next morning? You don't have to mention that out loud, okay. but something obviously took place that mm-hmm. night. Okay. And what happened that night for this 12 to 14 year old girl, because marriage throughout all of history has been for women between 12 and 14, was that this girl, for the first time in her life, saw who has the power. She saw that the power is in the hands of the women. Women are the powerful people. And they have, they, but when you're a little girl growing up in a world that's run by men, you think men have the power. Mm-hmm. And it's only on one's wedding night when you realize that how powerful you really are. Mm-hmm. And once you have that power, now your relationship with God's in jeopardy. Because, because power or ego is, is antithetical to a relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with God and have a big ego at the same time. Power is to God. God's the powerful one. If you're going with power, so then your relationship with God ha- is now in, in uh, jeopardy. And so the Torah commands that she now has to cover her hair the following day because now she knows her power. And now that she knows her power, she has to cover the source or the, the epicenter of sensuality. Hair for a woman is her sensuality. That is her sensuality. I mean, obviously there's other places that are sensual, but this is her external sensuality to the world. This is the part of a woman's being that is her sensuality when expressed in the world. And so, and so that's when a woman's hair is covered. So covering of a married woman's hair is is a something that's a Torah principle and is a way, a very important way of maintaining her relationship with the all-powerful God. That that is how she maintains that 
that relationship. I mean, there's a lot of things you do to maintain the relationship. There's 613 commandments to maintain the relationships. But one of the major ones that avoids her from flashing her power to the world is the covering of the hair. Now, then there, then the last subject is just wigs or scarves. Now, wigs defeat the purpose of everything I just said. But you'll meet many women who will say, well, well, you know, our community covers with wigs or, you know, all of Chabad covers with wigs. I imagine that's because their job was outreach and they'd be more accessible with wigs. I have no idea why Chabad is so big on wigs. But the uh, Sephardic women, though, who are not Chabad, do not wear wigs. And, um, and many of the Yerushalmi community don't wear wigs. But wigs are in, man. Like, wigs are a big deal. Probably every woman in this room will, will probably be in wigs. And, but, which completely defeats the purpose of not flashing your power out there. And, the, and some of these wigs, you know, they're like two, $3,000 wigs. And, and they're like... Many of these wigs are nicer than the girl's hair before she got married. Meaning now they get to have, like, they get to go from, like, regular hair to, like, the hottest chick in town. <laughs> right after their marriage, right after their wedding night. Which is like, what happened here? Now, when you speak to them, they'll say, well, it covers all of our hair. Because if you wear a scarf, maybe something's going to come out. But... Pardon me for saying, but that just sounds like the biggest load of garbage I've ever heard. You know, like, oh, so now you're going to walk around like, you know, this foxy lady, you know, because because maybe a hair might come out of your scarf. You know, big deal if a little hair came out of your scarf. You know, how can you walk around like this? If the point of covering the hair is for modesty, so that you can have a relationship with God and not be just some, in some fashion show or drawing all kinds of attention your way especially with men as we just described who even when they're fully observant have a hell of a time keeping their eyes to themselves anyway so we covered hair covering in a major way today this was like a serious uh, serious like bottom up uh, discussion on hair in women's lives and uh, it was kind of funny for me to have it I, I have to say just as a Hasidic man who really only is around men this was a little strange, especially nestled in this corner here. But, uh, you can find these women with their beautiful hair. I looked around the room and I'm like amazed. Wait till you see them after they're married. Okay. So. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.